Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. This week's story takes place in Manchester, England, year of our Lord, 2003. Ah, the toddlerhood of the internet, when MSN chat rooms were all the rage. For this case, you guys might want to get out a notepad and pen because there are so many characters involved in this week's story. The first one is a 16-year-old boy named Mark. Mark was from an upper-middle-class family, described as tall and well-built. Despite his status and rock and bod, though, Mark had a hard time meeting girls. And so he took to MSN chat, where it wasn't long before he met a girl named Rachel West. Rachel's profile picture was of a young, pretty girl, and she told Mark that she, too, lived in Manchester. Soon after the two started chatting, Rachel introduced some dirty talk. Being a red-blooded 16-year-old boy, Mark happily reciprocated and suggested to Rachel that perhaps they could turn on their webcams and take their sexy talk to the next level. But Rachel said no. As a woman on the internet, she was leery of being taken advantage of. She didn't want screenshots to start appearing on computer screens all over Manchester. The two continued to talk, and Rachel soon introduced Mark to her stepbrother, John. John was a troubled boy. When he was four, he had found a book with his birthday on it, but a different name. I guess he was an advanced reader. When he asked his mom about it, she told him that the man he had known as his father for the year or so his brain was making memories was, in fact, not. John's bio dad had been sexually and physically abusive toward his mother, and in John's earlier life had tried to abduct him. But Mum's new man wasn't much better. He was heavily into drugs and walked out on his stepfamily when John was seven. John, his mother, and his sister had to move to a much smaller house, and John regularly overheard his mom crying. In order to deal with his own sadness, he would poke himself with a cocktail stick. Life didn't get easier for John. In his early school years, he was bullied for his brown skin and caught a packy. His tormentors also called him gay. When John was accepted into a prestigious grammar school, the bullying didn't stop, and the only thing that made him feel like he had any control was going online. And so that's what he spent most of his time doing, especially after his mom bought him a laptop when he was 13. So Mark's friendship did John a lot of good. While Mark spent a good amount of time chatting with Rachel, he and John bonded over movies, video games, and girls. In no time, they were best friends. They hung out over webcam, playing video games for hours. Mark and Rachel's conversations continued to be sexual. While Rachel still didn't want to appear on webcam, she convinced Mark to turn his on. It was over his webcam that Mark first told Rachel that he loved her. Rachel typed back that she loved him too. Often, she would ask Mark to strip in front of his camera, and he would oblige. She never reciprocated. Since they both lived in Manchester, Mark kept asking Rachel to meet up, but she was too busy. John wasn't, though, so the two friends hung out in person often. Mark, Rachel, and John spent hours every day talking to one another over MSN, but their chat room wasn't secured. In April of 2003, a man named Kevin McGregor dropped in. Kevin was flamboyantly gay and demonstrated this by typing in a pink font. Despite knowing that he was chatting with three teens, or perhaps because he was, he was sexually crude and spoke often of his foot fetish. He also let the kids know that he was a proper stalker. He apparently felt the need to prove this, and John told Mark that he suspected Kevin was stalking John. Not long after, John said he believed Kevin was stalking Rachel and Mark, too. Mark kind of doubted this, but then Kevin started to recite private things about the trio's lives. 
At one point, when Mark and Kevin were alone in the chat room, Kevin ordered Mark to strip on webcam. When Mark said no, Kevin told him that if he didn't, he was going to kidnap Rachel. Terrified, Mark showed his feet on camera and masturbated. Kevin seemed sated, and when Mark told Rachel what had happened, she was stunned at the lengths Mark would go to for her. In fact, she was so amazed that she finally agreed to meet Mark in person. The day Mark and Rachel were to meet, Mark waited for her at the prearranged time and place, but Rachel never showed. After waiting for hours, Mark sadly went home and logged onto MSN, hoping Rachel would be on so he could ask her what happened. But Rachel wasn't on. Mark noticed that he had an email. It was from Kevin. Kevin told Mark that despite Mark following his sexual orders earlier, he had kidnapped Rachel and killed her. He gleefully described the violent torture and rape Rachel had suffered before she died. You weren't there for her, no matter how much she screamed, he said. Mark replied, how could I be? I didn't know where she was. After the brutal murder of the girl he loved, Mark became depressed. He didn't tell anyone he knew in real life what had happened. The only person he could lean on was John, who, of course, was also grieving his stepsister's tragic demise. The two boys met up even more frequently to get through that awful time. They grew even closer. A few weeks later, Rachel logged back onto MSN. She hadn't been dead, she told Mark, just in a coma. Weird that John hadn't brought that up. But Rachel wasn't done surprising Mark. She said that while she had been in a coma, she had given birth to Mark's baby, which was pretty astounding considering that Rachel and Mark had never even met, let alone had sex. Then Rachel disappeared again. On April 27th, 2003, while the boys were still reeling from Rachel's disappearance and death and resurrection and second disappearance, they learned that another girl from their group chat had also been murdered, a girl named Lindsay East. Mark and John hadn't been close with Lindsay, but it was still a shock, especially so soon after the news about Rachel. A few days later, Mark received a backdated email from Lindsay. It told him that if he was reading the email, it meant that Lindsay had died while trying to protect Mark and John in her capacity as a junior MI6 agent. Mark was shocked to learn that not only had Kevin been stalking him, but Mark had been being watched by MI6 too. Soon after Lindsay's death, someone new popped into the MSN chat. Her name was Dobinson, Janet Dobinson. Now that Lindsay was gone, Janet was taking her place as the MI6 protector of the boys. She also offered Mark the chance of a lifetime, becoming a junior agent in the British Secret Service. Mark was instantly taken in by this woman, who described herself as a 40-something who was, as she put it, still very sexy. Janet typed in all caps at all times and said that even her husband thought she was just a sexy housewife. Janet told Mark that in order to be made a junior agent, he'd have to pass some initiation tests. First, he was to serve as a bodyguard for teenage VIP James Bell. If Mark succeeded at this, he'd receive £30,000 and would progress to the next test. Mark would later say that being offered this opportunity was like all of his birthdays coming at once. James Bell was 14 years old and worth $548 billion. He had to be protected because there was a secret safe containing all the world's richest jewels, the combination to which only James and the Queen of England knew. And then, Mark learned, he actually knew James. He'd known him for months. James was actually John. Now, Mark didn't just take in all of this information without question. He thought it was strange that he would be asked to do this, but also he'd hung out with John in public plenty of times. Why would John, allegedly a VIP who needed to be protected, be allowed to wander around Manchester with no bodyguard? 
But Janet assured him that this was all true by telling Mark information only those close to Mark would know. When and where he'd gotten his last haircut, where he'd gone last Saturday, and what he'd done. But Janet wasn't the only one who'd been watching him. According to Janet, Mark's home hamlet of Altrincham was full of secret agents. The clerk at the chemist's, secret agent. The ice cream man, secret agent. The homeless man at the bus stop, definitely a secret agent. Mark's first assignment as James John's bodyguard was to get John out of school on a particular day. Mark successfully convinced John's teachers that John had a doctor's appointment, and the boys hung out in town for the rest of the day. Mission one, complete. Janet's assignments for Mark to do with John got steadily weirder, until finally Janet came to him with his most important task yet. She explained to Mark that this assignment was straight from the desk of Tony Blair, and if Mark didn't succeed, Janet would be fired. His mission, Janet told Mark, was to make James Bell, John, look gay. Now, let's put this into perspective. It is obviously a weird thing to be assigned to do, but back in 2003, being labeled as gay was at the very least social suicide. Not a lot of high schoolers were openly gay back in 2003. And perhaps because of this, Mark believed that John would only accept being labeled as gay if it was of the utmost importance. Mark was offered yet more money, that 30k hadn't come through yet. The very day he was given this task, Mark went to John's house where they each performed oral sex on the other. Mission two, complete? In June of 2003, school was out and Mark was looking forward to a carefree summer with John. But it was not to be. Janet told Mark that James had a brain tumor. He was in pain and needed to be mercy killed, from blowjobs to murder in 2.3 seconds. Mark was told that if he succeeded at this, he'd be initiated into MI6 and also get 80 million pounds. Mark asked John about what Janet had told him, and John confirmed that he did have a brain tumor, and it was a big one. Now, since Rachel's demise, Mark hadn't gotten any action, even virtually. Sure, he had blown and been blown by John, but that was just an assignment. He hadn't actually enjoyed it. So when Janet told Mark that if Mark successfully killed John, Janet would meet up with him and they could have sex, Mark was all in. Mark asked Janet how he would know what to do when it came to killing John. Janet told him what kind and size of butcher knife to get and how many times he needed to stab his friend. Then, she told him, he should wait 20 minutes before calling the police. And in case the murder needed to be called off, Janet would be in disguise in the vicinity and would yell out the code number 6969. Whatever happened, at the end, Janet would show herself. On June 29, 2003, Mark went to go buy the knife he would use in his mission. John came knife shopping with him, but Mark told him that it was a gift for his mom. At 7pm, the two boys entered an alleyway behind the local shopping center. Mark looked around, but didn't see anyone who could be Janet Dobinson in disguise. And so he began stabbing John in the chest and stomach, keeping his ears open for anyone yelling the code number. Once John was thoroughly stabbed, Mark leaned down and whispered the phrase that Janet had told him to say to John. I love you, bro. Then he waited the prescribed 20 minutes, during which time John shouted, You've killed me! Mark told him, Don't say that. Don't let that be the last thing you say. Janet still didn't reveal herself. When Mark finally dialed 999, he told the operator that a stranger had come over and stabbed his friend, and gave them the location. Then he fled the scene. John survived the stabbing, but was in critical condition for a week. He had a pierced kidney, a lacerated liver, and his gallbladder was destroyed. 
While John was recovering, the police spoke to Mark, who couldn't seem to keep his story straight. The officers told Mark that they knew he had stabbed John because they'd reviewed the CCTV footage and there was no stranger present at the scene. Found out, Mark first told the police that he heard voices telling him to stab his friend. Then he told them about Janet. The police took a look at both Mark and John's computers. They collected over 133 gigabytes of data. Printed out, the stack of paper will be 46 feet high. Upon reading the MSN chats, the police were pretty sure that Rachel West, Lindsay East, Kevin McGregor, and Janet Dobinson were all false identities, and they were concerned that behind each persona was a pedophile. After all, all of them but Lindsay had requested that Mark perform sexual acts in front of his webcam. Funnily enough, there was actually a girl in Manchester named Rachel West who worked at a local shop, and the police arrested her before finding out that she had no idea what they were talking about. When asked about all of these characters, Mark was not only convinced they were all real, but felt betrayed by Janet. She had promised him that he wouldn't be arrested for John's murder because he was stabbing his friend on orders from the government. John, too, confirmed Mark's story from his hospital bed. Mark had been working for MI6 when he stabbed John. And so, Mark was arrested the same month the stabbing took place, charged with attempted murder. He waited in juvenile prison while the police continued their investigation, which took three months. Criminal intelligence agent Sally Hogg read through the 58,000 lines of text, and at first she thought that Rachel, Lindsay, Kevin, and Janet were all different people. But she noticed that despite their different text colors and typing styles, each of them misspelled the same word. They all spelled maybe, M-Y-B-Y-E, every single time. She could see that Mark wasn't playing all these characters, but when she looked on John's computer, she saw that Janet Dobinson's account had been the last one accessed on it. John was immediately brought in for questioning. He admitted that he had been everyone, except, of course, Mark, and that he had tried to orchestrate his own murder. For a long time, John had used the internet to ignore his depression. He was so addicted to the internet that in the months leading up to the stabbing, he no longer slept or ate. He would return home from school at 4pm and log onto his computer. He would then game and chat until 7am when he would leave the house again for school. He confessed that he had 193 fake email addresses, including livinitlargelad at hotmail.com. He admitted that there had been instances where he had been manipulated online and he had taken to hiding a knife under his keyboard. John had created all of the characters as a way to talk to Mark. He thought Mark was gorgeous, perfect, and way out of his league. And so he lured him in with Rachel. Once, he even confessed to Mark that he had pretended to be Rachel on a particular night so he could have virtual sex with him. He told the police that fooling Mark was easy. As he put it, it was like feeding a dog. When John was still in the hospital, he had requested to see a psychiatrist. Because of the way the UK's healthcare is set up, he had to be put on a four-month waiting list. When John finally got to see a therapist, where he discussed his internet addiction, he described feeling a buzz when he used a computer and that being online was like satisfying a craving. His therapist also noted possible obsessive-compulsive tendencies. He had a strict washing routine, and no part of his body could be cleaner than another. If he diverted from his usual way of dressing, it would fill him with unbearable anxiety. John also believed that the whole world saw him as a terrorist and people were constantly talking about him. John told his therapist point blank that he had orchestrated his own stabbing because he wanted to die. Quote, I couldn't go on with this fantasy. My life was on the internet. I didn't like it, but I couldn't undo it. 
He said that he knew he needed to give up his computer, but if he did, it would be like losing a part of himself, as well as everyone he loved. When he spoke to his therapist about Mark, he would usually cry because he loved Mark so much. But when they'd been talking, Mark had only had eyes for Rachel and Janet. After his admission, John was arrested in October of 2003. The boys had a trial together in May of 2004, during which neither looked at the other. Due to the boys still being minors, the press was not permitted to release the boys' real names. The names I've been using are the pseudonyms other articles have assigned to them. This case was one for the books. John had organized a murder, but it was his own murder. And Mark had attempted a murder, but the person he stabbed had asked him to do it, even going with him to purchase the murder weapon. And it had to be taken into consideration that they were still legally children. In the end, John pleaded guilty to inciting a murder and preventing the course of justice. He received three years of supervision, which means he could not use chat rooms or use the internet while alone. Mark accepted charges of attempted murder and got two years of supervision. The boys were told they could never speak to each other again. John's mother believes that therapy has helped John a lot. According to her, not only has it helped him with his internet addiction, but it's also cured him of his gayness because he now has a girlfriend. But John has told his therapist otherwise. He often revisits the site of the stabbing and says that he loves telling his girlfriend the story of the incident because due to the limits on the press, he can tell her the story however he wants. And despite John's mother's reports that he is much more comfortable at home, John said to his therapist, it doesn't suit me being part of a family environment. He said he can't see himself getting married or having kids because he has no interest in being stuck with the same people for life. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash hookedthepod, where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.